Hi! Hey, welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. See, it began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That question led me on a deep dive into the history of my faith, the history of the Bible, the history of the canon, the history of Christianity, really, and it was in that journey that I encountered the Catholic Church and and Catholics in, in general. And as I began to read from actual Catholic sources, what Catholics actually believed and said about themselves, I realized that what I thought I knew about Catholicism was based in large part on misinformation and, more often than not, on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that same gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week I have a real Catholic conversation with a real Catholic thinker from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week I have a fantastic guest to bring to you. I'm talking about Dr. Mary Jo Burchard. She's a Catholic convert through a really interesting uh, lens, perspective, journey. I had her, he- her husband, Kenny Burchard, on the show a little while back. I'll link to him in the show notes. And he told a fantastic story of, of being a charismatic pastor and hearing quite literally the voice of God calling him into the Catholic Church. Well, Mary Jo, his wife, is, has no less interesting story. It's also so fascinating, a kind of parallel journey, she calls it, through through studying church history and, and church leadership, through experiencing struggles in leadership in the Protestant church, and really asking questions about why this was the way things were done. And then beginning to see the Catholic church and authority in the Catholic perspective and, and the magisterium and these kinds of things and unlocking a whole new world, a whole new paradigm for her and becoming Catholic. It's a fantastic story, and I'm so, so pleased to bring it to you this week. I think you're going to love it. I I really do. It's absolutely wonderful. This conversation and all others are brought to you by our patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. If you want to help support the show, please head over there and have a look at ways you can do that. There's all kinds of different levels you can support the show at, and there are all kinds of different ways that I, in a small way, say thank you for your support. One-time donations can also be made at paypal.me slash cordialcatholic. And all your support, guys, all of it goes to helping this show keep going and keep growing. It's not my full-time job, so honestly, that support is really important, and it's just wonderful in helping to underpin this thing and, and support this work. So thank you. And now, without any further ado, here's my fantastic conversation with Dr. Mary Jo Burchard. It's a wonderful one, guys. Please listen and enjoy. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Uh, if you're listening to us on podcast, we're also available on YouTube at youtube.com slash the cordial Catholic to watch what you're listening to. And if you're watching us on YouTube, we're also available on podcast everywhere at the cordial Catholic. Do check us out there and uh, listen to shows on the go as well. Fantastic conversation for you this week. I am joined by Mary Jo Burchard, a convert to the Catholic faith with a fantastic story. She is a, grew up as a non-denominational 
denominational pastor's kid all over the U.S., met her husband, Kenny, while serving with Youth of the Mission in Japan, and they worked together in church leadership in various capacities for over 20 years. Well, she was also doing a parallel uh, career in higher education. She has a PhD in organizational leadership from Regent University and runs an organizational leadership consultant uh, organization. Organization. <laughs> Now, as well as she'll tell us more about these things. Uh, Mary Jo, welcome to the show. Thank you for Thank being you here. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's great to be here. Uh, I was telling you before I hit the big red button that I we ha- I had Kenny, of course, her husband, on the show uh, a little while back to tell his story. Very popular episode. Very well received. Listeners loved it. Got tons of great feedback from there. Some saying he was crazy. How could he ever betray the, his charismatic background and become Catholic? Others saying, well, of course, of course, this is the logical outcome from studying the church and, and these kinds of things. And I was telling you, I began to watch your episode on the journey home, and you and Kenny both filmed uh, with Marcos Gordai down there. And I, and as I began to watch your episode, I thought, geez, Mary Jo, I, maybe I had the wrong spouse on the show because <laughs> Kenny's got a great story, but so do you. So I'm really glad I reached out to you and, and you said yes. So I I want to hear your story. I like to, as Marcus Grodai, you know, says, this kind of get out of the way and kind of hear your story and we'll hear it kind of unfold and I want to stop along the way and some pit stops and, and dig a bit deeper. But it's, from what I understand, a fantastic story. So start us off, maybe if you can, at the beginning, growing up as a, as a pastor's kid uh, all over the U.S. Let's begin at the beginning for you. Sure. Yeah, I I would like to say that I am a cradle Protestant, <laughs> if there is such a thing, um, because there's not a moment in my life that I can look back at and not see clearly and feel, remember the presence of God and an intimate knowledge and love for Christ. In fact, one of my earliest memories is I had uh, pajamas that had my heart belongs to daddy on the, the, uh, the, the chest right here. And I felt convicted about it. And I went and I told my dad, I don't think I should wear these. Is this idolatry? (laughs) And he said, sweetheart, no, I think that God knows that your your heart belongs to daddy in a different way than it belongs to Jesus. And I said, okay, I'll still wear these. Um, so I, in fact, I, the earliest that I remember uh, telling my parents that I was convicted, that I believed that God had called me to be a missionary. I was um, four years old in kindergarten and a, Japan, a missionary to Japan had come and uh I remembered it so vividly and I felt like the Lord told me that I was going to be, go to Japan one day. And, um, I never deviated from my love for Asia the whole time that I was growing up. But when we lived in, um, I only back up and say, my parents did not believe in the age of accountability that, you know, you have to be at least eight years old, but they did believe that it was important to, um, be careful with other people's conscience. And so I was asked to wait until I was eight years old to be baptized. And that was highly vexing for me as a kid <laughs> because I truly, truly uh, felt like, uh, I mean, I knew that I wanted to be a follower of Jesus. And so um, I was baptized on Easter the year that I was eight years old. So by my father. Um, but 
So when we, when I was a young child for several years, probably the most formative time of my childhood in terms of my faith was the season that we lived at Christ for the Nations. It's a Bible college in Dallas, Texas. It's a I don't know if you'd want to call it interdenominational or non-denominational, but it had people from all over the world that had come there. And, you know, it was the 70s. I'm dating myself and that's OK. I own my age. But um, it was the 70s and early 80s. And um, so people were coming there, refugees from communist countries, um, having fled for their lives because of their faith. Um, people coming out of civil war in Africa and in Asia and different places. And so many of them were coming to that Bible college specifically to be trained up as missionaries to go home and evangelize their homeland. And other people were being trained up, you know, from here in the United States because they wanted to make a difference wherever there was great, the greatest need in the world. And so we didn't have a lot of money, but I'll tell you the people that, uh, you know, I was hearing these stories, you know, um, scars, bullet, bullet marks through legs, you know, and stuff of the parents. And I was going to school with these children. And so my image of God, my image of who Jesus was, is that he was dynamically engaged in the world yeah. and still actively saving people and actively calling people to be warriors, you know, for him and healers for him, even more importantly, healers for him. And I wanted to be part of that army. Um, from a very young age, I was a worshiper um, and a, um, I wanted to be an evangelist wherever I went from a very young age and uh, just had a heart for people. And so my parents, because my father was also a pastor, they saw that heart in me and all of us as children, we were expected to pull our weight in the ministry uh, capacity. So I was teaching uh, Sunday school and children's church with my mom. I was assisting her in early elementary and by late elementary, I was teaching and my mom was helping me. Um, and I was just very um, sold out, you know, as much as I could be from my earliest days, my favorite things to read were missionary biographies. And I know that Protestants say that they don't have saints, but we did. We, we had heroes of the faith. It's the same thing. We just, the only thing is we didn't know that we could ask them to pray for us. Um, but really, I wanted to be one of those people that was on one of those lists that other people would want to emulate yeah. and could be inspired by. And so that was how I grew up. And when, um, uh, I got about to junior high, almost to middle school. Um, my dad just really missed traditional pastoring. And so he left um, the Bible college where he was dean of men and where he was, he also te taught biblical counseling there and um, went back into traditional, uh, traditional pastoring. And that was a bit of a culture shock for me because I had lived in such a multicultural um just all out for Jesus. Everybody that I was around had been all out for Jesus and into the suburban America. Um, I don't know. What have you done for me lately? Kind of church culture. And I did not know how to find my place because I kept looking around thinking this is not the same gospel that I had been immersed in, you know? And so um, 
I'm going to use an analogy that came from uh, something that happened to my husband and me when we were quite young um, newlyweds. I had bought some coconut milk um, because we had gone to a Thai restaurant and we had had a coconut milk beverage and I wanted to cook. So I got some, the other kind of coconut milk, which is basically coconut lard and it was in a can and um, I had set it out so that I could cook with it. I'm not changing the subject. I promise. (laughs) Hold on with me. And so, so um, I, I came to cook and I couldn't find it. And I heard my husband moaning in the other room, like groaning in the other room. And I looked and the coconut milk can was empty. And I said, dude, <laughs> did you not notice that this didn't taste like, you know, cause I said, what did you do? And he said, what happened like when we had it in a restaurant? <laughs> and I said, did you not notice? that it didn't taste like the same thing that we had in the restaurant. And he said, I just kept thinking, pretty soon it's gonna taste good. Pretty soon it's gonna taste good. Until the whole thing was gone. I looked and it was like over 200 grams of fat that he had just guzzled. And he's just writhing and sweating. So I kind of felt like, so I call that an, uh, a coconut milk episode. When you are, you keep drinking and drinking, thinking pretty soon it's going to taste good. Pretty soon it's going to taste good, you know. And so that was what kind of the rest of my childhood was like, that I would I would meet, you know, a few people here and there that I could really be inspired by. Um, Open Doors is a ministry that supported the underground church during the Iron Curtain. And I, as my, my family and I personally uh, sponsored it monthly and we'd go to conferences and stuff like that. And so I would find these places where I felt like I could really resonate with they get it. They understand, you know, and I want to be, I aspired to be a Bible smuggler, you know, um, uh, into the you know underground church and all of that. Um, but for the most part, when I would go to church, I felt like I did not fit. I felt like the people that I was going to church with, I loved them, but I felt like they were we, we, ha- we were on different frequencies and I felt like their understanding of the gospel was not my understanding of the gospel. I didn't understand uh, why anybody would want to ask if you could be once saved, always saved, because why would we only want to just do enough to get to heaven when Jesus gave everything that he was for us? And um, and so I just felt like we were having, we were all asking different questions, you know, and I did not resonate with the majority of the, the people that were around me. So um, I found myself just almost holding my breath, wishing that, uh, waiting till I would be old enough to be a missionary, you know. Um, and so when I went to college, originally I w- was thinking I want to study something that's going to make me an effective missionary. Um, originally I had a scholarship to Gordon college. My dad got really ill my, my senior year of, of high school and actually spent the bulk of my senior year in the hospital. So I ended up taking a scholarship close to home at a public university. You know, most public universities don't have a major in missions. So (laughs) I had to figure out what else I could study. And so um, I kind of collected majors. I did music um, therapy and music performance. I did psychology. I did communications. I competed on the speech and debate team. Uh, 
And I started looking at it going, you know, I love children. I love families. Maybe I'm supposed to be in elementary education um, because that could, I wouldn't waste any of my units. And then I just thought, you know what? I need to just get out there and see what I do. And then I'll come back and, and get whatever degree I need later. And so I just quit. I quit halfway through and moved to Taiwan with Youth With a Mission, went through discipleship training school. Um, it was the first time that I felt like I was with my people again. You know, the people who were there, I think there were maybe 11 different nationalities on the team. Um, everything was bilingual. All of my roommates were Chinese. Uh, but many of them had lost their families by declaring their faith. When they got baptized, their families disowned them. Um, and so it was it was real. It felt like um, we're not playing, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I was there for six months doing their initial training. And then I uh, went on staff with a Youth with a Mission on Okinawa and did their, I, I ran their um, intergenerational um discipleship ministry. So I was working with different local, different denominations, but local churches to help them develop uh, programs that would um, work with parents and youth to, to disciple the whole family. So we'd, 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 uh, we saw youth as kind of the, the link between the adults and the children. And um, it was full body discipleship. So um, I was, a couple times a month, uh, spending a, a, most of the day with with the children and the youth and the parents that volunteered, and then um, we would do outreaches in the community. And then in the summers, we would go over. We went to Romania and we worked in an orphanage. During that time, I met Kenny. Kenny was in the Navy and studying to be a pastor in his uh, spare time. And we got to know each other actually through doing outreaches together uh, with Youth with a Mission. So um, we jokingly say, I'm a Christian. I like you. You're a Christian. You like me. Let's get all this Christian goodness together, you know. But um, so we got married in Japan and uh, it was a bilingual ceremony. Um, and none of our parents were there. Yeah. It was that was a painful part, but we were really poor. And so it was either, you know, get married in the spring, uh, save up for the tickets and not have money for a wedding, um, or get married, you know, in December. And both of our parents called us, both sets of parents called us and said, why are you waiting? Everybody who knows you as a couple is there. So um, we, we got married there. And then when we came home, Interestingly, we went into uh, Christian radio and we, we went home the next year. Kenny got out of the Navy and we went home. We got into Christian radio for a year. And then my parents moved to Africa um, on the mission, onto the mission field. And they were, they went to Africa, then they went to the Marshall Islands and then Indonesia. So th it was their time to leave. And then we were in uh, church, different churches and doing different um, church leadership for a number of years and um, then I finally went back to school and got my bachelor's, master's, and doctorate almost without stopping in, in leadership. So that is actually, uh, you know, Kenny will tell you a different story. We were on parallel tracks 
Um, but my, how I started to get more and more curious about the faith was actually through my studies of organizational leadership. So, um, I guess I'll take a breath and, and <laughs> any questions. I'm curious to go back and see who talked longer. You or you or Kenny. That's fantastic. You really got going there. I love that. And I love this to sit back and listen. That's a fantastic story. And I do love your impression of Kenny's voice. That's that's quite the with the coconut milk and the that's great. That's wonderful. I'll have to have you both on at one at the same time one so we can, oh, we can see what stories. There's such banter. <laughs> there's such banter. I can imagine. So I wonder I gosh, your story is so fantastic so far because you are you are in this kind of pressure cooker for Jesus, right? This really this this mission field kind of training area and meeting these people who are really serious Christians. And I love that. I don't love it, but I, I totally understand that dichotomy and then going into a suburban church and seeing what Christianity looks like there and how, yeah. and how different and shocking that would be. And then that longing for that, that tasty coconut milk as you keep drinking the can, right? <laughs> that, you, that you had. Great, great analogy, by the way. Great story. <laughs> that makes so much sense when, when you say that. I wonder what your, what if any your view of Catholicism was at that point. Like as you're looking, well, that's a really good question because unlike so many people, you know, Kenny has a different story. You know, he when he was introduced to Christianity, it was as he calls it, you know, hint of lime, hint of hint of uh, anti-Catholicism was kind of embedded in there. I was born into a family that didn't know pretty much anything about Catholicism. And in fact, uh, my family is so Protestant that we can trace our history back to the Mayflower on my mom's side Uh in eight different directions Uh from eight different lines. Okay. So um, this isn't just because my grandparents were Protestant or my great grandparents, but going back several and on my dad's side, I think, all the way back to the 1700s, it started with Amish, you know, and so there's Amish and Quaker pioneers happening on my on my mom's side. So what I'm saying is, it's kind of like, um, and I said this on EWTN uh, on the Coming Home Network. I look at my experience more as you know, if a if a child was born to a mother who had um, been divorced. And, and I never got to meet my father or his side of the family. And so there wasn't anything negative said about them. It was just a mystery and it was so far away. Um, and so I didn't know anything. It just wasn't, we didn't speak of these things <laughs> when I was younger. Um, I remember, you know, passing by Catholic churches, but it just seemed foreign to me. It wasn't until high school when we lived in New Mexico and it was in, in Farmington, New Mexico, and it was a very uh, largely Catholic, there was a large Catholic population there. And that was the first time that I had close friends who were Catholic. And I had, I must say, several um, very devout Catholic friends and um, they took their faith very seriously. One of them is a nun now in Nashville um, somewhere. Her name was Ann Burnham. It's something different now, uh, but her name was Ann. And uh, another friend, her name was Karen. And Karen and I actually went to college together at Eastern New Mexico University. And she and I were two people that were in a 
Bible study, we met every morning. Um, and I was one, I think there might've been one other person who was not Catholic, but it was a largely Catholic wow. Bible study. And it was a dialogical Bible study. It wasn't like me saying, here's how you really ought to think about the Bible. Um, but we just went through, um, we did, went through different epistles. And then on Fridays, we would take turns reading Psalms. Um, and one of the things I remember coming out during that time uh, in fact, it might have actually been my friend Karen who said um, Protestants know a lot more. They've done a lot more study on the epistles where the Catholics spend more time in the Gospels. And I remember going, I don't like that that's true, <laughs> but it is, you know, um, and I, it, it made me kind of take pause. But during that time, it actually um, the one person that I dated in high school was a Catholic who, because of me, and I, I still feel bad about this, but he became Protestant oh, no. because of the time that I was spending with, not that I, I don't remember saying Catholic Catholicism is evil or anything. Um, I do remember going to mass with him once. And I remember thinking, I remember weeping while I was at mass and thinking, this is the most beautiful thing. I I could see revelation. I could see oh, all of the things in there, but the dichotomy for me was while I was looking at all this beauty and how everything was seemed like it was where it belonged. Um, it didn't seem like the people that were there, it was penetrating. It just seemed like they were rote. And so the, that, that, that paradox really, I didn't know what to do with it. Um, but when I was in college and I went to mass at the uh, Newman Center a few times and the Catholic church that was right off the campus um, with my Catholic friends, I did not have that feeling. It was very dynamic and very positive. It's, it was just still very foreign to me. Um, it's kind of like, sure, I've, I love sushi. Um, you know, it just, it something that you enjoy, but it's not, you know, it's not a home cooked meal <laughs> you know, at that time. So, yeah, yeah. Well, I think, yeah. Of, I think of two things because on the one hand, you grew up in a very non-denominational context, right? It wasn't like you were wed to a certain denomination or something, which, right. which, you know, if you're reformed or something, you, you're sometimes raised very anti-Catholic and, and you know, you're reformed theology, that the bounds of your theology and that's what you believe and everybody else is, is wrong. But probably your upbringing was, was theologically broad, or or at least you were exposed to a, lot, a broad theology in non yes. context, right? And so that's interesting, as, as that informs your view of Catholicism. And the other thing I think too is, and Kenny and I have actually joked on Twitter about this before, because he's posted some pretty funny memes about the, the mission field, right? The the idea. I mean, I, d I did a few missions trips uh, in high school, and university with my with my Pentecostal church to places to, to Kenya and um, and then South Africa later on, and sometimes the idea is. Let's go evangelize these people who don't know Christ, but sometimes go to a country that's incredibly Catholic, thinking, oh, they're, they're not really Christian though, right? So we'll go, we'll go to like Brazil or something. We'll go to Mexico and do this missions trip because these guys are Catholic, but that doesn't count. They're not Christians. Let's let's give them the real gospel, right? Yeah. So so what was there a sense of that sometimes that that you would, I mean, because that seems to me to pervade kind of the mindset of a lot of. Uh, Protestant missionaries that sure there are tons of Catholics around the world but they're not really Christians out there they, you know they, we need they need to hear the real gospel 
when we go and, and see them? Interesting question because I spent most of my time in Asia, yeah. um, which is not classified as yeah. any kind of, you know, the Christian presence is always in the minority, yeah. any flavor. <laughs> um, and in fact, the, the Youth with a Mission uh, team that I was on in Taiwan, there were, there was at least one Catholic that was from Holland that was, was there. Um, and so I don't, I don't recall that being a big thing. However, I will say this later when we lived in California, I remember when we were at a non-denominational church and I was running the children's ministry, Kenny was running the worship ministry. I remember, um, being with a group of, of, you know, ministers and church leaders from different churches in the area. And somebody said, well, you guys are from the, you know, the largest church in the area. And someone said, well, besides the Catholic church and everybody kind of went, well, um, you know, um, and, and for me again, it's, it, it, it God forgive me if I uh, am remembering it wrong, but I, I will tell you that I never doubted whether my friends, my Catholic friends in high school were, um, were Christian. Um, the big thing that I struggled with was, so I had, I had Catholic friends that were not serious about the Lord yeah. and I had Baptist friends who were not serious about the Lord. And I had, you know, Presbyterian friends that were not serious about the Lord, Pentecostal friends were, and where, whenever I met people who claimed to be Christian, I did not hold back <laughs> to challenge them about their seriousness, about their faith. So it's, I, it's very possible that when I spoke to Catholics, um, I, you know, I, I tried to find the things, you know, that, that now, I, like I said, not with the, the serious Catholics, but with the not serious yeah. Catholics, I would push those, 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 not the, the typical Catholic buttons per se, but how can you say you're serious about Jesus if, how can you say you're serious about your faith if, um, and, I hate that um, because I was not Catholic, asking those questions um, probably led to people uh, questioning their Catholicism, not their not the seriousness of their faith. In fact, I know that to be true with a, a colleague that I worked with in California at a Christian university. And it was about, about half the people that I worked with were Catholic and the other half were not. And there was a young girl who had grown up Catholic. She'd been in the youth group where um, Kenny and I had been on staff before we had um, at the church that we were on staff with before Kenny uh, planted the church that he was the senior pastor. Of. Anyway, um, we ended up working together when she was grown and I was challenging her about her, the seriousness of her faith. Um, I was not trying to make her not be Catholic. I was just saying, let's just be, can you be serious about your faith? Um, and she started coming to our church because I was the one that was investing in her faith. Right. And, uh, so I'm, I was the one that was helping her disciple her children. I was the one that was helping her to understand the scripture. Um, 
And for a long time, she was going to mass and she was coming to our church. And then eventually she just was coming to our church. And for me at the time, I was just like, I'm just glad that you're serious about your, wherever you're going, I'm just glad that you're serious about your faith. But what was heartbreaking is that when she found out that we became Catholic, she was like, I'm not Catholic because of you. <laughs> and I was like, I, that was not what I was trying to do, you know? And so there is an element of that and it's unintentional, but I just didn't have there. I was an equal opportunity, um, <laughs> challenger, you know, I was going to push anybody against the wall to try and help them to, um, be serious or not claim to have a faith, you know? Um, and that, that does cause me some pain and some heartache that, uh, I wish that I could have also known that the fullness means that you are in love with Jesus and the oneness of his, of the Catholic faith, you know? But I didn't know that yet, you know? Yeah. And, no, it, and that speaks to that underscore, this is a different subject entirely, but that underscores the need for Catholics doing that. Catholics discipling other Catholics and really building up and mentoring, right? We definitely we need more of that in the Catholic Church. So glad you're on board. <laughs> <laughs> so you said that you began your journey into looking into the Catholic faith kind of began with, with doing your doctoral studies and your and graduate degrees. How did that begin? Like, where were you when that kind of began to unfold? Can we, can we go there next? That, Is that a good time to... Yeah. And isn't that funny? Because I wasn't a theology major, yeah. you know? I wasn't the, the typical track that you would expect. I was an organizational leadership person. <laughs> um, but what I started realizing as I started studying leadership is that the, the, the struggles and the conflicts and the, just the tensions that never went away within the, the evangelical circles that I had always been a part of, um, were rooted in the fact that there was no standard. Now they will tell you, anyone will tell you, of course there's a standard. The standard is the Bible, right? But everybody's using the Bible to prove their point. And who gets to say when there's a dispute, who's right? Well, a lot of time that's the, whoever's got the best hermeneutical argument or who's quoting the most famous preacher or, you know, something like that. But because there's not an unbroken memory, uh, an unbroken conversation, a, a link that went all the way back to Christ and even before Christ, all the way back to Judaism, you know, um, because there's that there's such a lost memory. It's like the evangelical church has such passion, but they walked into the room um, after the whole house was built. And they're trying to, um, with the limited materials that they have, um, without having the blueprint of the house and without having all of these other contexts, um, looking around at, you know, why the furniture is where it is, without having all of the information that they need in order to have a um, robust and fully informed um conversation. So what you get is a lot of wiggly people in terms of their faith. Uh, you know, you they call it church shopping. When you go to a new um, town, you you look for for people, you grab your list and you try and find the people that match yeah. your unique 
flavor. It's kind of like going to when they used to have Golden Corral or, you know, one of those, you know, you, you want to go where you can pick your dishes the way you like them. And it's just a smorgasbord. And so, so everybody's picking. And so the pastor is there to try to accommodate because they need the income. So they're trying to accommodate um, the the desires or the interests of the, of the people who are keeping that thing going. Um, and if there's a, a sin, you know, a, like a, a, something that's going on that is blatantly um, damaging. Um, if there is a heresy, who gets to say, yeah. who gets to say um, that somebody shouldn't do this or that somebody shouldn't believe that who gets to say, well, our denomination says, or well, well, but, but this is America and we can say what we want. We can do it. So even if as a local congregation tries to hold some kind of standard um, that they have established the people that don't agree can just go next door or down the street and start from scratch. And the same thing with leadership, even the leaders are, if you try to hold any of them to accountable, they can do the same thing. They can hold their breath for a couple of minutes and then start some new thing somewhere else. And um, the reason that we moved so much as when I was growing up is that my dad would um, come in after there had been a church split or some tragedy and, and, um, try to be a shepherding pastor, try to be a father, but they would say, you're not the dad. You're not the shepherd. You're not our shepherd. We were here first. Um, and there, so oftentimes we would kind of bear the brunt. And I say we, because it was my father, but we were with him, you know, we would bear the brunt of the people that had come before. Um, and, it was too late. And so we would go to the next place. And he always was trying to um, find the place where we could stay and heal. And we just never found it. And so the organizational leadership studies that I did helped me to see this wasn't just a spiritual attack. This wasn't a fluke. And this wasn't even just a failure of, you know, my dad to find the right fit. This was innate to the fact that there is no standard there's no authority there's no um there's no one who gets to say you know there's no way to hold anybody accountable in any sustainable way and so it's the biggest the strongest and the loudest who and the richest who win and um and so that was very disturbing. I didn't have anywhere to put that. And that was like through my master's degree um, in leadership that I started, I, I did my master's on ministry mindsets and how that those things, you know, impact the way that we behave. But when I went into my doctoral studies is when it started really hitting home because um, I decided to do an added emphasis of ecclesial leadership. You can't study church uh, leadership without studying church history. Yeah, yeah. And I'm grateful that Regent had the integrity to require that we study church history. And so we went all the way back and, you know, we looked at the Didache, we looked at, you know, the church fathers and I started going, Ooh, these guys look really Catholic. Um, <laughs> and then uh, we got into the middle ages and um, I saw how Francis of Assisi and Claire of Assisi um, and, you know, people during that age 
they were radical reformers um, and they were not trying to be un-Catholic. And I remember bringing that up saying, my goodness, look at how, you know, you can't get much more radical than having, you know, Francis uh, hearing the voice of Jesus saying, repair my church that's in ruins. And first he thinks it's the chapel, the literal chapel. And then he realizes God is talking about the body of Christ, you know, um, you can't get much more radical than he was. And yet he was doing it from within. And um, I started seeing, Oh, this is much more incarnational. Jesus went as um, Bishop Barron often says, he goes all the way in and all the way down to, to save. And, and so I saw embedded, embedded reform embedded, you know, where you're fighting it out because of love, um, not, drawing the line and saying, whoever is on the Lord's side, come over here over and over and over again. And so the line just keeps getting further and further away from the, from the, from the brand, from the vine. <laughs> um, so I started realizing that. And so a lot of my papers when I was in um, my doctoral studies uh, started sounding very Catholic. Um, I did a whole um, study on the leadership, a leadership model based on Clara of Assisi's Sacred Heart um, writings. I uh, looked at Francis of Assisi as an alternative way to um, deal with, with conflict in organizations. Um, I just started looking at, you know, the significance of a magisterium, you know, when you have um when you have your tiny little voice and instead of saying, it's just me, Jesus, you know, <laughs> I'm going to decide me and the Holy Spirit, we're going to decide. Instead, we're saying, wow, I, if I am part of the body of Christ, not just as it is right now, but through all time, you know, through all the ages, and I am immersed in that conversation you get really tiny really quickly and you, you realize you got to shut up and listen. Um, and you know, when I hear people, you know, many of my dear friends that are still in church leadership and, you know, Christian leaders in an evangelical expression, they'll say, but what do you do if you disagree when you disagree with, with the Catholic church, how do you deal with that? And I'm thinking, okay, first of all, if I disagree, my first assumption right now is I probably don't understand the context. I'm probably missing something. I, you know, I haven't listened to all of the Council of Trent, but I've listened to enough of it to realize I don't know what I don't know. I have listened to all of Eusebius and I got very angry because there was a lot of the story that was conveniently missing in the way I had grown up hearing it, you know? So... Uh, my first assumption, if I disagree, is what am I missing? Where did this come from? Let me go back and find the history behind this before I say that I have an opinion about something I know nothing of. Um, but then the second thing is the thing that I another thing that I love about um, Catholic teaching is that there are layers of belief. There's the um, you know a dogma is non-negotiable. But a discipline, if it resonates, do it. If it doesn't, you're good. you can still be a good Catholic and not ever say the rosary. I, you'd be missing out, but you could do it, you know. Um, and then you have all the, you know, scapular. That's not a requirement. That's a, that is a devotional, you know. And so all of these different levels. 
evangelicals, Protestants, we don't have different levels. There's what you believe and what you don't believe. It's either biblical or it's not biblical, you know? And so having the, the um, ability to put a hierarchy of teachings and say, okay, yes, this is, this this discipline or this doctrine is in the, within the these are different positions within the scope of this is okay for you to believe and still be a faithful catholic um over here this is not trinity not negotiable you know um marian doc, doctrine that she or marian dogma she you know immaculate conception not negotiable but let's look at why you know let's look at the history of that let's not just say well if you don't believe it, can't be Catholic, you know? Um, so I had a lot of rumbles to do, but um, when I realized that um, God was calling me, you know, drawing me um, into the, the ancient faith, I did not realize that that meant that I was going to be Catholic. I just believed that I was getting deeper into what I wanted to be serious about. And if I was really serious about it, I couldn't shy away just because it was uncomfortable or unfamiliar or foreign to me. Um, and so when we moved from California to, to Virginia, we did so, one of the biggest reasons that we did so, and it was right after I finished my doctorate and Kenny finished his master's, we felt like God had called us out of the clergy life and into embedded missions. Like, let's just be humans who love Jesus and are trying to unbreak the broken world. Let's just do that. And it was the first time in my life I ever got to live just as a person who loved Jesus out of the fishbowl, you know? Um, and so we spent four years trying to strip away, you know, uh, Marcus Grodi asked me, so what did you call the faith? What did you call the church? Um, that was when we really started doing the deep dive, Kenny and I, and what do we call this? When you strip it all away, what do we have that's left? And um, so we were meeting with people in our home at that time. Um, and for a year, we were going through scripture, seeing what do the people of God, what does the mission of God look like throughout the ages? And how do we continue that story? Then we moved into um, the gospels, and we were doing that. We would meet two times a, a month with people from lots of different denominations. In fact, our closest friends um, during that whole season were an Anglican priest and his wife. Um, the, and we would, you know, minister together with them. And then on the off Sundays, we would visit different churches from different denominations, including the Catholic Church. I'm not calling it a denomination, but including we would go to mass sometimes, and um, we would ask these questions when we would go to different churches: What is Jesus doing here? What is at the center of their worship? What seems to be the most important? What? needs in the community and what niche are is this community of believers filling how should we be praying for them so we weren't shopping for a church but we were trying to kind of map out what jesus was doing in the area and trying to map ourselves out in the process so while we were doing that we also some co-workers of mine at, I was working for the city of Virginia Beach at the time, and two of my coworkers were Catholic, and they asked me and Kenny, they, they were doing a um, 
an evangelistic Bible study at this Catholic church. It was an eight week study and they asked us to be table leaders because <laughs> they knew we loved Jesus and we promised to, to be good. <laughs> um, and uh, so we spent eight weeks with um, a bunch of Catholics. We each had our own table and facilitating discussions. And two things that struck me during that time and Kenny too, um, was the hunger for Christ. Um, but also, um, an unfamiliarity with all that he had to offer. Um, but the, but it, it felt like, wow, this is right. This is right. You know? Um, and, and so I love that, um, the Catholic church owns that the new evangelism is within. And one of the reasons I believe that God has called us to the Catholic church is not to fix the Catholics because I am a Catholic and I am not apologetic about that, but it is to help them to see how rich they are, how rich the Catholic family is that we get everything. And so how can we not just plunge in as deep and as hard as we can? So I teach CCD now. I teach, this is going to be my second year teaching, um, um, fifth grade catechism, which fifth grade is the story of salvation from Genesis to Revelation. And it's perfect. Um, and I teach my kids the Apostles' Creed with motions because I was doing that when I was Protestant. Um, and the books of the Bible, songs, I converted the, the Protestant song into the original edition of the Bible to have all of the books. Um, but I just, I want to see families get excited together about their faith. Um, I know that it's possible when people don't even have all of the, all of the things that the Catholic church has. And I look forward to the day to see whole families getting excited that their family is immersed in this unbroken history of families that they can um, not be terrified of their children having um, questions uh, and that they can explore and be missional together. I, I look forward to that kind of um, faith being normative in the Catholic church. And I believe that, that that's one of the reasons why God is calling so many evangelicals home to, so that that can happen. Yeah, yeah, I, I have to agree with you. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> There's so much I want to ask you. Okay, so I want to start with this. I wrote a blog article when I was so I so I began blogging my journey, and I had like one or two friends who were, who were reading this this blog, and uh, it was more for myself, a therapeutic kind of expression of of what I was discovering as I was looking into the Catholic faith. And one of the early articles that I wrote was called um, "The Protestant System Is Is Designed to Fail." Because what I hit against is kind of what you are, are talking about. I had a guest also, Sonia Corbett, on the show, who was involved in church leadership in a number of church splits, eventually encountered that same kind of feeling that, look, we're all using the Bible. We all have the same authority, quote unquote, but we can't right. agree on what it means or how to interpret it. And it's causing all this division, right? And, and it comes down to the hermeneutic you use. Right, I, I I have a, a very good Protestant friend who we we once every few years get into a great big knockdown drag him out fight over something, and then and then don't talk about the faith like our different because I was evangelical along with him and I became Catholic so we argue mm. about about that once every few years, and then and then leave it alone and then come back again a few years later and, and have a big big fight and it, it's a good cycle we have a good relationship we have going on here we're very good friends sure. we, we talk daily. Uh, not about the the Catholicism, but but right. other things. And, <laughs> yeah. and and we our, our last big argument was about this idea that 
because I was talking to him, but well, how do you interpret a passage like John 6, where, where Christ, ta- you know, we Catholics interpret that to be the Eucharist, that Christ tells us to eat his flesh and drink his blood, and he's speaking quite literally, and, and disciples of his leave, they walk away because it's a hard teaching, and he doesn't bother to clarify, or, and in fact, Paul in Corinthians doubles down and uses the same language, very literal language, uh-huh. and I said, well, how do you interpret that? If, if the Bible is your authority, I interpret it one way, you interpret it a different way, we're looking at the same Bible, how can we disagree? And and his response was, well, you're looking at it through the wrong lens. I interpret that verse based on this other verse here, and that's the lens that I use. And and we were at an impasse at that point, but that, that's what it comes down to, right? It comes down to, to if the Bible is the authority, you, you can't, you're still interpreting the Bible, and there will be different sure. interpretations. And it seemed to me when I was blogging back then, thinking, thinking through this uh, therapeutically, that the system itself, it, it, it can't work from the start because the Bible has to be interpreted. And, yeah. and how are we going to interpret it? How are we going to interpret it without one of us interpreting it? Right? It right. requires an interpreter, right? And that's kind of, I think, what you seem to hit against as well, right? Yes, yes. Um, I, I have to say that the I think one of the biggest challenges there too is that the reality is that, um, what, and the question that I had to ask myself when I was thinking about this too is, where else can a Protestant go? They don't have the authority to confect. They don't have the, priest, the, the priesthood, you know, the form the priesthood of the apostolic authority to confect the Eucharist, right? So if they're going to exist um, and be in fellowship, they have to develop a way to think about communion that doesn't require a confected Eucharist because they don't have access to it. Um, And so from an organizational standpoint, you know, I don't know how that whole story has evolved, but I can't help but think in so many of these contexts, you know, um, the non-sacramental nature of these, these faith communities, they're doing the best that they can with the very limited authority that they have because they are apart from the, the mother church, you know? And so, um, part of me feels kind of like it's as if they were orphans, you know, trying to build a church with a cardboard box, you know, and making it as good as they could. But they don't have a family. You know, they don't have the, the resources that they need in order for it to be everything that it could. But they're passionate and they're committed and they're dedicated, but it keeps falling down in the wind and blowing around. And and it, it honestly, it breaks my heart because I look at it. And I can say some of the most dedicated, passionate, um, Christ-exalting, Christ-loving people who ever lived are evangelicals. Um, And they just, they don't, they're doing the best that they can with what they have. So you have to work your way backwards. How else can you interpret John 6 if you don't have any authority to confect the Eucharist? You know, you're left with, very few choices 
go to go home <laughs> or develop a theology that will allow you to be sustainable outside of that option. Yeah, yeah. I love what you said too about the Protestant walking into the house that's already built. And I picture this guy at a party walking into a party already going on in this house going, hey, I'm here, guys. And the party's been going for, you know, 1,500 years and they just arrive and think that they know what's what's all going on, right? They go and begin cha- right. changing the CDs and, or whatever, right? And, yeah, and on that, so they hear words. They're hearing words and conversations. Yeah. And assuming that they understand the meanings of those words, then making assumptions because they don't have the whole story, and then misinterpreting the conversation. And so I have found myself that there are many, many words that Protestants and Catholics both use that do not mean the same thing. And so many of our disagreements are because we're using the same word with a different you know, different meaning like prayer. Who could have thought that prayer doesn't mean the same thing to the Catholics and Protestants. I didn't know that. And so when people would say, I pray to Mary, I thought they were treating her as divinity because I didn't know that they were meaning that they were literally asking Mary to pray for them. Like we would ask each other to pray for us, but she's not busy down here on earth. She doesn't have anything else to do she's in the presence of jesus you know so so much i think of the misunderstandings also stem from if you come in late on the conversation and you don't take time to catch up on what was going on before you got there then you'll think you understand a word um, and its meanings and its implications and use and create a whole sub you know context and arguments against a straw man about a conversation that isn't happening you know, or against a conversation that isn't happening. And that that is a big part of the the struggle between evangelical um, believers and Catholic believers. Yeah. And so I think even an informed Catholic, now knowing that, sometimes I think the Catholic silence is, there are so many layers to answering this, I don't even know where to start, you know, because we need to start with the meaning of words, you know. So I think that we all need to slow down and listen if we're going to have good conversations with each other and say, what do you mean when you say this word? Because this is what I mean. And I don't think that's what you mean. Yeah. So yeah. it comes from listening so often, right? I think of some good friends who began looking into the Catholic faith through going to a Catholic Bible study, right? And, and realizing, oh, yeah, and listening to what Catholics were saying and, and realizing that there were Catholics who took their faith seriously, right? But it takes that stopping and listening and and asking one another what we actually mean by the words that we use, right? I think that's so important. Uh, something else you said that really struck struck me is the idea of this reform from within, right? Because the, the narrative that I inherited, and I didn't grow up in an, in an anti-Catholic context, but it was kind of in the air we breathed, right? That the, the, the Pharisees were like the Catholics because they practiced this outward religion, right? And so just by default, Catholics were not great Christians or not Christians at all in some cases, if, if we're in the extreme fringes of, of, of my Pentecostal experience, right? When I said that Catholics weren't even Christian because they're just kind of practicing 
their faith and that's kind of it right but this idea that so the reformation had to happen because that church was all was was busted and corrupted and had all these barnacles is the typical thing you'd see right on the ship you hear that kind of thing bandied around but the idea that you saw through your through your lens of leadership i mean i love that journey that you saw this idea of reform from within and, and the power of that this incarnational kind of reformation within the catholic church i can remember encountering the, the counter or the, the counter reformers, right? Like St. Francis de Sales and these guys who wrote, mm-hmm. who wrote against the reformers saying, look, look, no, 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 we did, some, we're, we're fixing this. Like here's, a, you know, end up being blown away that, that the idea that there was a counter reformation and how much more sense that makes than busting yeah. off from the church, right? If we, right. I, I think if you stop and think of that, just that, right? And I've I've tried to in in uh, three hundred characters on Twitter express this from t- time and again, but it makes no sense that that Christ would want the church to be broken asunder to then take that remnant and make that into the, into what a real Christian is, and that's this evangelical kind of church, right? You yeah, you use the word remnant, the holy remnant, you know. And honestly, I for many many years when I was growing up, I felt like. I'll just be part of the holy remnant because it felt like I couldn't find, you know, drinking the coconut milk, couldn't find many people who wanted to be serious about their faith. Um, But I always also felt like an orphan, like like our family was was outcasts because we were always on our way. We were coming into another new congregation um, to try to bring healing, um, but it was like an organ that wouldn't take, you know? Um, and so that, that feeling of rejection, that feeling of being on the outside, the feeling of, um, wanting to serve, but only ever being a servant and not having a place at the table. Um, the Catholic church was healing in that way as well, because it felt like I had the ability to come all the way in and all the way home, even though I'm still learning. I feel like and my, my Twitter uh, handle is Catholic immigrant because I feel like I'm still learning the, the moves and the words and the culture and all that stuff. But um, that sense of being on the outside and never Fully being able to belong was a thread that went through my whole existence, even as a missionary, you know. Um, and the when we became Catholic, I can go anywhere on the planet and find a Catholic church, and it's my home. When I first went to the Basilica, the, the National Shrine in uh, Washington, D.C., I walked in and I said, this is my house. This is my where my this belongs to my family, and as a as a ministry nomad growing up, to feel like I have a sense of permanence and that wherever I go in the world, I'm with my brothers and sisters, and we can worship the Lord together, and I belong. It's a huge, huge um, place of healing. I will say this though about that very thing. I think that one of the things that is offensive to Protestants or evangelicals, whatever you want to call them, um, who are looking from the outside at the Catholic Church, um, the mystery of the Eucharist and being denied the table feels like a rejection. It feels like 
you're not welcome here. It feels like um, we don't want you at our table. And even when I knew that I was coming into the Catholic church, that was a rumble for me because, you know, you don't, Oh, you decided to become Catholic here. Here's some Eucharist. You know, it's not that easy. You have to go through the whole process. And it did feel like rejection. Um, and it takes, again, it takes deep, deep listening to hear this is not rejection. This is love because we do not want you to take into yourself judgment because you have not rightly discerned that this is the actual presence of Jesus. And this is all of him in all of his presence, body, soul, and divinity, body, blood, soul, in this, if you, you're not ready for that, we love you enough to deny it until you are able to have that. But from the outside, again, when all you have is to compare, to compare is passing uh, an offering plate with some juice and crackers on it, and you don't get to participate this time, it feels like rejection. And um, I think Catholics need to work harder at helping people to understand that that is not rejection. It is love and that there's nothing that that we want more than for people to come home and eat, eat the feast with us. But but unity cannot be defined by let's all agree to disagree. Unity, true unity, means that we have some rumbling to do, we have some listening to do, and we have to make peace with what we had not given a chance to be true. And um, that's not rejection, that's love. Yeah, and deeply biblical. I mean, Paul says we have yeah. to discern. I mean, that that is, ironically, ironically, right, the, the Protestant who takes the Bible seriously, it's biblical. <laughs> I mean, the, the, yeah, it following is. that, so... I think that's so interesting. I, I could keep you forever. I could talk to you for a very, very long time. Um, you and Kenny have that way about you um, that we could just talk for hours. I want to maybe ask you one more question, though. And, and sure. that's kind of, I mean, because you talk about the fullness of the Catholic faith, and I can see I, mean, I can see you and listening to you. I mean, you are somebody who's, who's, you have not lost that spark that you had as a kid, the missionary kid. You haven't lost that spark. I, I feel like it's only increased into this burning forest. Oh, yes. This it's burning <laughs> It's burning yeah. forest fire now at this point, <laughs> right? So I wonder, I mean, talk about the, the change from becoming Catholic to what opened up for you. Because obviously, I mean, I can think of my own life. You hear these stories, and I, had, I have very good friends who were following me on, on the journey, and it was, oh, you know, Keith becoming Catholic. He'll, he loves it now, but of course, he'll, he'll mellow out pretty soon. Like, we, we know he'll. Right? Because you do have these highs as an evangelical, right? And I certainly did it, certainly mm. in my teenage years, right? You go to a conference, a rally, and you're got this high, and then it's kind of low again, this high and this low. So it was, it was a, it, you know, my Catholic phase. But I can honestly say that it's only, that fire's only increased in my life to the point where yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this stuff now and I love it and I can't mm. get enough of this, these kind of conversations. Yeah. Talk to us how, how your fire has increased in that same sense. Because you are somebody, and Kenny as well, who, who, who took and takes your faith very seriously. And I love... I love underscoring that for listeners who are thinking about becoming Catholic or who are on the outside. You guys weren't mucking around. Like you're very no. serious about your faith. And it cost us a lot. <laughs> yeah. It cost us, it would have cost us even more, but we had already laid a lot down, yeah. you know, because we, yeah. we had already left the community that had, you know, over a decade uh, straight of us just pouring into them as event, you know, as, as their, church leaders um, moved across the country where we knew nobody 
and um, and then peeled everything away and said, whatever you want, Lord. And it was, it was, so we already went through that stripping. And so it made it a lot easier for us to do it. But to, to answer your question, um, it's almost as if, okay, I've, I've always loved art. I've always loved to paint. I've never been formally trained, but, um, I make a go of a lot of different little things. Um, but when I first went into the Christchurch Cathedral in Canterbury. I take I had taken a uh, an outreach team to Canterbury, and I I went into Christchurch Cathedral, which is a by rights Catholic cathedral, even though it's currently Anglican. Right, um, it, that was the Jerusalem. Canterbury was the Jerusalem of Western Europe for a lot of years, and um, so you can feel the history in that in that cathedral and I walked in and there was I think an 80 person children's choir that was singing um and about knocked the wind out of me I just looking around and feeling the history it was where um Thomas Beckett St. Thomas Beckett was martyred was in that cathedral and um so that cathedral is um dedicated to Christian martyrs throughout history. And there are books that you can go through of the, of the, of the martyrs, even uh, contemporary martyrs, but there are weeping cherubs and, you know, just, but I remember walking in there and saying, this, this is my ancient faith. And as, like I said, a, like a wandering nomad who, a patriot with no country, you know, was, was my heart, my whole life walking in there and feeling anchored and deepened and broadened and feeling like the body of Christ that I have loved that was global, but was also timeless, that it drew me in. And I connected with it. In fact, that on that same trip, I went into a non-evangelical Christian bookstore for the first time. And it wasn't Catholic. I think it was Anglican, but I found a copy of, um, St. Augustine's Confession, never read it before at that point. I was in my 20s, and I couldn't put it down. It was, to this day, it's one of my favorite books. It's a dog-eared copy, a paperback copy that I found in Canterbury. But that was another kind of seed that I didn't know was calling me to be Catholic. So I, I take that and I fast-forward that to um, any time I go into a cathedral, any time that I go into um a parish that's historical or anything like that I am reminded again aesthetics are very very important to me because I I see how you know taste and see I go back to uh, Deuteronomy 6 uh, when God was talking to the Israelites before they went into the promised land and um, he said when you lie down and when you get up and when you sit down and when you stand up and when you go in and when you come out, when you're walking, by the way, all of this time, you need to be uh, filtering every engagement through the word of God. And then it says something really interesting. It says, and when your child um, asks you, what do all of these things mean? So there's a moment in time where they've been saturated their whole life, but there's a moment in time where they're looking around and all of a sudden it hits them. There's, there's gotta be a meaning to all of this. Then you say, 
we were slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out with his mighty hand. Then you introduce him to the person. And so Deuteronomy 6 was like a mantra to me. Um, so when I found the Apostles' Creed, I just clung to them. I was like, okay, that's part of the Deuteronomy 6 thing, you know. Um, I was constantly, I didn't have a word for it, but as much as I could, I tried to create something that, I can only call like a liturgy for the for the children and for the youth. We had we would begin with the Apostles' Creed. We would do you know um, certain songs, and then we would pray, you know we would do things in certain order. And I would try and create immersive rhythm. And um, when I became Catholic, that's what Catholics have done throughout history. That's what cathedrals were meant to do. And, um, you know, when people couldn't read, they could listen and they could see and they could just immerse themselves in the presence of God without it being about just letters on a page, you know. And even back as far as Christ, the word of God was meant to be read, it was read aloud. It wasn't all just about your personal, your personal devotional time. And that's important as well. But we've lost, we lost so much of that because it's all about me and Jesus and my little Bible and my little devotional, my highlighter and um, my Bible cover and all of the little trinkets and doodads and all that stuff. And I, I, I look around and I say, this is the immersive faith that I was searching for my whole life. The, um, the way that I can describe it is when we first um, went to the little town that we ended up moving to in California, I looked around and I felt like, this feels like home and that's supposed to be there and that's supposed to be there. And that. And Kenny said, well, it's a homey place. I said, yes, it's homey, but it feels like home. My heart is already here. Everything is where it's supposed to be. I feel like I already know where everything is. I just, I'm remembering. And that is how I feel about the Catholic Church. It was like it plugged in what my heart always knew I was supposed to have and didn't have access to. Um, there's a book, Letters to a Young Catholic, George Weigel. Um, that book is a cathedral between two covers, you know, and it is it is the history it is the history, the immersive history of go in this place and you'll see this. And then here's the history behind it. And this is the theology behind the history. And this is why we are the way that we are. And Weigel did another one. Um, someday I want to take that book with me to Italy and just at, during Holy Week and go to all its um, Roman pilgrimage and same thing. So the deepening that I see is I tried to create and imagine and develop and build as many immersive multi-sensory missional things that whole families could experience together and and it was all embodied on a walk through the basilica behind a grandma and her six you know four or six year old grandson when she was saying where do we always go first we go to where Mary and Joseph are resting on the donkey. And yeah, we're going to go pet and we're going to go touch um, their little feet. And I thought, there it is. When you're going in and when you're coming out and when you're walking by the way and when you're lying down and when your child asks you, what does this mean? We were slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out with his mighty hand. The Catholic Church has all of that. You know, they haven't lost any of it. And they're not making it up. It's not a shtick. They're not trying to look ancient-y because it's old school, cool now. It's, they're really, it's real. And um, and so I, that's why it's so exciting to me because I was trying to make that happen. 
And I did my best to make it real by immersing people. And I, so now my, my job has shifted to helping Catholics to see it's right here. It's right here. So, yeah. That's, that's fantastic. I really do love your voices too. They're just, they're just wonderful. <laughs> it reminds me of one final thought I want to share with you because I, I had Father Joshua Caswell on this program. He's the Superior General of the Cannes Regular of St. John Cantius, and they have a beautiful church in Chicago. I have not been, but I've seen some video and I've spoken to him, and he's Canadian like me, so we have a lot in common, but... Uh, and grew up uh, Pentecostal, actually grew up a uh, uh, son of missionaries out on the uh, indigenous reserves up in way, way up in northern Canada. And he said something to the effect of the, the charismatic uh, Protestants are the closest to, to Catholicism because the way they worship is with the senses, right? You have, yes. you have uh, in some cases, the very powerful music. You may have yes. sometimes the you know, lights and smoke machines and the the, <laughs> the, the emotion of that. The, the Shekinah machine. Yeah, you know what? And, and, how, and how close that is to Catholic worship, right? He said, that, yeah. he said there's nothing more evangelical, more charismatic than then celebrating the, the Eucharist with, with incense yes. and Absolutely. and the standing and the sitting and, and the, the body being involved and yes. and then and consuming earth. There yeah. is that sense yeah. that you are living in that that overlapping place that that you usher in your life, your worship ushers in a thin space in the universe where heaven yeah. and earth meet. That yeah. is a charismatic Pentecostal reality. It's just culminated in the Catholic Church, yeah, he, you know, he said, "How many of those worship songs? I want more of you, Lord, or show me, show me your face, Lord." These songs we would sing. How many of those are fulfilled in the Catholic Church? Because like, there he oh, is, yeah. there's Christ on yes. the on the altar in the Eucharist, right? And yes. and how much closer can you get than consuming our Lord and and becoming more like Him through that incredible, miraculous interaction, right? So when yeah. you said talked about the that trying to build this the aesthetics and the sense of thing, that's what it reminded me of. That, that yeah, it's. It's there and it's ancient, and, and they did that for since since the beginning, right? And you said before the beginning of the show, right back into Judaism, right? This continuing right. line of yeah. of the, the the senses being part of the worship and and that that continuing, right? And mm. that didn't stop. I mean, some some right. of us stopped and inherited a, a Protestant <laughs> tradition where that was not being done, but it's always been there, right? It's, it's amazing, yeah, yeah. It is. It is. Well, I, I want to thank you for your time. I, I think like Kenny, this won't be the last that I'll hear from you on this program because we could dig into so many things, so many topics and side trails we could go down, but we'll save that for future uh, episodes. Maybe you and Kenny on at the same time would be really, really interesting. <laughs> and maybe dangerous. It can be serious. Yeah. It yeah. can be pretty fun. <laughs> yeah, that sounds fantastic. Uh, where can people go to, to find out more about you? Can I check out some of your work if they're interested? I know you have a lot of things on the go where where do you want to point them towards that's a good question so um the the my my website for my work is concordleader.com all one word concord leader uh we're just getting ready actually october 1st we're releasing a book called i want to be um, an instrument of peace and it's a retelling of the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi yeah. and that is going to be released on um, a new website called neotonybooks.com and neoteny is a bio biology term that means um, 
the retention of ju juvenile properties into adulthood. So um, anyway, th th that book is going to be released on neotonybooks.com October 1st. Um, and my Twitter is Catholic Immigrant. And uh, yeah, that's the, and LinkedIn, I'm on LinkedIn. Mary Jo Burchard is on LinkedIn. That all sounds fantastic. And uh, yeah, I definitely have you back on the show when we can, because there's a lot of places we can go in conversations. Listen, Sweet. I, I want to say thank you for being here. Thank you for your time. Um, God bless you and the work you're doing for the church, this fire you're lighting in all of us, because just speaking to you, I am now more more excited and engaged than I was an hour ago. So thank you for bringing <laughs> that. Thank you for your lovely impressions. And thanks for this fantastic conversation. Uh, thank you so much. Sure. It's my pleasure. Thank you. And I will look forward to talking again. Absolutely. God bless. Well, friends, hope you enjoyed that conversation. I had an absolute blast. If you watch the video on YouTube at youtube.com slash thecorgicalcatholic, you'll see me smiling and laughing my head off at particular points in the show that you can't necessarily hear in the podcast version. But honestly, uh, Mary Jo's voices and some of her stories just absolutely had me in stitches. They're fantastic. Especially the coconut milk drinking one. I, I think I was crying by the end. Laughing at that story. Just wonderful. The Cordial Catholic is our website, thecordialcatholic.com, I should say, for show notes and links for this show. Check out the show notes also on your podcatching app to see different links to Mary Jo's stuff and to the episode that I did with Kenny, her husband, a fantastic episode in its own right and very popular, very well received. I think you'll like that episode as well if you haven't heard that one yet. Cordialcatholic at gmail.com is my email address. Please do write, send me some feedback. Let me know who you are, where you're listening from, and why you continue to listen. I love to hear from you guys all the time. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Cordial Catholic. Please do follow us there. The Cordial Catholic on Facebook. And of course, youtube.com slash the Cordial Catholic to watch what you are hearing. Patreon.com slash Cordial Catholic to support this show or PayPal.me slash Cordial Catholic for a one-time donation. That goes back into helping this show keep going and keep growing. And you have my sincere thanks for your support. It's honestly, guys, not my full-time job. You know this. And so that money, that financing, the funding helps to keep this thing going and help me to find the time and have the availability to, to do this thing in the beginning. So, Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you again next week, guys. God bless. Take care. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordial cafe. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.